We're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. If you've got your Bibles, go there. We're looking uh, at a series. The series is titled, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're uh, looking at who is this God who, uh, when he shows up to Moses at the burning bush, that's how God introduces himself. And you might think, if you hadn't read Genesis, that, wow, these... These must be really significant um, guys, these patriarchs, this Abraham and this Isaac and this, and this Jacob. And, um, and, and so there must be something incredibly significant about these men. And the truth is, yes, there is something incredibly significant about them, but it's not what we would think. We find out about these, these men, um, Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, that these are men that in many ways are just like you and I are. They lived in a real world and they struggled with real sin and their real brokenness. Their families were not the model families. Uh, they're the families that today would end up in, in counseling and possibly in court. These were men that were broken and yet... These were men and families that were loved by God and part of God's plan from the very beginning. And so what we'll see this morning is you've heard of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And this morning what we're looking at is we're looking at the birth of the nation, if you will. It's Jacob, in a few chapters, will have his name changed to Israel. His sons will uh, become the namesake for the 12 tribes. And it is here in this passage that these children are born. I might say it this way. Most people I know have something about their life they wish they could change. Uh, maybe something in your past, maybe uh, something in your present. You know, if only that was different, then I could really be happy. I could be used by the Lord. But maybe there's something in your life that's, that's paralyzed you. You know, it's kept you from living like God means for you to live. It's nice to think. I mean, it'd be nice to think if we could... You know, our histories could be changed. They could be edited. It's a fanciful thought to imagine that we could rewrite our histories. Our passage today, it's, it's a passage that is the writing of an unchanged past. It's, it's history. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's the story of an ugly past. And, and for the God of the universe to record the ugly past of his covenant people, I think that's something remarkable. Can't forget the context of the writing. That the Israelites, they've just been freed from years of slavery at the hand of the Egyptians. And this is a people who are wandering in the wilderness. And you have to think, they're desperately looking for identity. For over 400 years, they and their parents and their grandparents and grandparents before them, they were known as the Egyptian slaves. That's who they were. And Moses shows up to say, hey, you're so much more than that, and I want you to follow me because you're God. 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is calling you out of Egypt to a promised land. And Moses is answering the question for these people, who is God? And he's also answering questions they would have had about who they were. So, so they wanted to know how God was working, if at all, in their lives. See, they desperately needed to know who they were. I can tell you, if you're wandering in the wilderness, you find yourself wandering in the wilderness. Imagine if you're a young parent, you know, and you've got all these little kids. I mean, a Saturday afternoon's hard enough, right? And you've got an iPad and, and television, and all you're trying to do is just watch UT lose another game, and you can't seem to get five minutes. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like wandering with your toddlers in the wilderness? You have to have had the thought, life didn't turn out for me like I thought it was going to. Moses is recording the past. So where do we come from? Who are we? How did all of this happen? And so Moses is going to record this. Well, I'll tell you. And it would have been easy. I think it would have been easy for Moses, or at least tempting for Moses, to kind of gloss over the past. Hey, you're a noble people. Let me shade the past a little bit for you so you can have a noble history, you know, one without blemish, one without shame. But that's not what we find here. Moses is going to carefully and artistically record the details of a past that is scandalous. And at the same time, he's going to reveal the depths of who God is and who God is as a sovereign God in control of all things. So there's honesty that we'll read. There's, there's parts of these verses that every single one of us in this room can point to and go, you know what? That's the part of this story I relate to. And so we want to look at it honestly. We want to interpret it honestly. We want to be courageous as we look at our own lives. What we find is we've got to see life from God's perspective. But we need eyes that in the midst of, of pain and, and sorrow be able to look up and to realize God's never been absent. Absent. It's in the midst of that pain and sorrow. God's been there all along, and he's still doing that. He was doing it with the people of Jacob. He was doing it with the people of Bethel Bible Church this morning, and he's doing it in intimate and personal ways in your life. So look with me. I'm going to start reading in chapter 29 of Genesis. I'm going to start in verse 31. And this is how Moses records the birth of the, of the 12 tribes. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord had, has heard that I am hated, he has also given, he's given me this son also. And, he, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again, bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Hmm. Three things we'll find out about God throughout this passage. One, there is no pain that he does not see. Secondly, we'll see there's no sin that he cannot redeem. And finally, I think we'll see that there is no past. No past, no present, no future that can disqualify you from a future with him. This, all this time period... Uh, takes place over what we figure out is a seven-year period. Uh, Jacob has just finished working off the bride price that he had agreed upon with his uncle Laban. And, and the bride price was for a, a girl, the, the daughter of Laban, named Rachel. Rachel was the youngest daughter. Well, J Jacob is, is tricked at the end of the day, he, he's married to the wrong wife, and now he's at the beginning of another seven years of service for his true love. In fact, in verse 30, just before we started to read this passage, talks about Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. And then we're introduced in, in verse 31. You heard it. She's the wife who's, who's unloved. The ESV says Leah was hated. She's the older daughter. And it's very possible that she's an innocent victim in the whole situation. See, Jacob loved Rachel. He bargained for Rachel. He was given Leah. Leah never caught his eye. He, he didn't want her. It seemed maybe her dad didn't want her either. Laban might have been worried. Listen, time was passing by, and she wasn't going to get any other offers. And so Laban sneaks her into the wedding dress and into the bedroom. Now, I, I have all the same questions you do about that situation. I don't know how you wake up with the wrong woman. But he does. Maybe Leah thought, you know, once all the dust settles, she could win the affection of Jacob. She secretly hoped that Jacob would embrace her as his beloved wife. But the truth is that never happens. 
Notice how Moses opens the passage with a heavenly perspective. When the Lord saw, it's through the eyes of God that we're introduced to this scene. Moses, he he wants us to know from the very beginning of this plight of Leah, she doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. Not only does he see into this situation, he listens to her heart. Verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated or that I'm unloved. God sees into that. He he hears the cries of her heart over and over and over again. If we were reading through Genesis this morning, you would hear, you would hear those that have encountered God say over and over again, God sees me. God heard me. God knew. Leah's not the first. She won't be the last. God heard the cries of her heart, and he begins to to bless her. Now, the names of these children are very important. They they give us a glimpse into the heart of this unloved woman. You you heard the names. The the first one was her son, Reuben, literally translated. means, see a son. There's exclamation points all over that deal. The, The Lord has seen my affliction. Simeon comes along. Simeon means because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved. Her third son, Levi, what it does is you heard it in the name. It expresses a hope that her husband will finally become attached to her. I mean, for crying out loud, I've had three children with him. Maybe now he'll attach himself to me. I think her hopes are unrealized, and that's the naming of her fourth son, Judah. She finally finds the, the place in her life to praise the Lord. That's what Judah means. Praise the Lord. So she's praising the Lord in the midst of her pain. God is sovereign. He is compassionate. And he hears and he responds to the affliction, the the hurt of his people. Now, here's the deal. If we went back and looked several chapters earlier, we've already knew. We already knew because of what God said to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob's going to have 12 sons. We already know Jacob's going to have 12 sons. What we didn't know is the absolute mess that was going to be created in 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 the coming of these 12 sons. The the relational carnage that was going to be swarming all around it. Listen, it's not much different than our lives. We, we so desperately need to know, just as much as she did, that God sees and he hears and that he knows. 
what's going on in our life as much as he knew what was going on in Leah's life 4,000 years ago. But you got to see this. The, the desires, the earthly desires that Leah had, as best I can tell, they never really get fulfilled. God was was working in her life. God was doing something he had promised he was going to do. God's actually doing something far greater than Leah can possibly imagine. Some of that she's going to miss. Her situation remains unchanged, but God lavishes blessing upon her. God didn't change the situation. He blessed her in the midst of it. Man, we need to know that sometimes. God sees and he hears and sometimes he doesn't change the situation. He just blesses us in the midst of it. That's why it's so important. We've got to see life and what we're walking through from God's perspective. Listen, Leah wouldn't even be aware of the extent of the blessing until she's in the presence of the Lord because from her womb would come Moses and David and Jesus. God doesn't change her situation. He blesses her in the midst of it. Life, listen, I I don't even know all the details, but I can tell you this. There are disappointments in your life. Things haven't turned out like you thought that they would or how you hoped that they would, whether your career or your family or your marriage or your kids or you're in the midst of circumstances. You go, where is God in all this? I'm telling you, Leah was asking the same questions. This wasn't how life had planned. I am sure she never dreamed of marrying her sister's husband. I have sisters. I promise you they don't dream about that. I'm sure she never dreamed about marrying a man who didn't love her. Who, in fact, hated her. But she comes face to face with a God who sees and hears. He sees. He hears. You have a God who sees. Who is this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God is announcing, I am a God who sees and hears. And I know exactly what's going on in your life right now. Every detail, every cry of your heart. And while Leah might not ever have known the comfort of being attached to her husband Jacob, let me tell you something. He has attached himself to her, God has, and he has attached himself to you through his son Jesus. And he's worthy to be praised for that. God may not change the situation that you're in or give you the life that you always hoped for. He might. 
But even if he doesn't, he will bless you. Listen to what God said to the Israelites. Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Through Isaiah, God says to the people of his day, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace will not be removed. Or at the end of Matthew when Jesus says, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. In some of the last words of the New Testament in Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. I tell you, I like that bit, the end of 29. It's good stuff, I think. In fact, it's so good, I don't even want to go to the next section of the passage. Looked at it all week and thought, I wonder if I can just stop there. Just four kids and say, yeah, you know, and the other eight came along. Can't do it. And the reason is the next section's hard. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to take in. Hard to, hard to swallow. It's where it kind of gets dirty and it, 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 and it kind of hits home. Because the section's going to highlight the brokenness and the sin and what it looks like when we take our life into our own hands. Read with me, beginning in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she had borne Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. I think, it's, I think we can categorize her kind of as high maintenance at this point, right? Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Stop right there for a minute. Commentator named Alan Ross, he, he wrote this in his Genesis commentary. He said, the desire for affectionate approval often leads people down dangerous paths. Unrequited love, a lack of recognition, or a complete disregard is difficult to endure. One recourse is to pursue love and recognition by any means without regard to the cost in terms of long-range effects. But such a direction, such a direction in life on an earthly level, well, that's not the way. Of faith. You, you read those first two verses in chapter 30 and you realize the story is begging for a hero. But Jacob is not that hero. 
God's going to be the hero of this story. And then you get to verse 3 where Rachel hatches this plan. She sort of takes matters into her own hands. Here's a problem. I'm going to fix it. And so she, she gives her maidservant to her husband. And you think, wait a minute. Why would you do that, Rachel? Don't you know what happens when you do that? Jacob's grandmother did that. The very same thing. And it was a terrible mess. Surely she knew all about Jacob's uncle Ishmael. You know, she must have known because actually she quotes Sarah here. That through her, I too can build a family. You can look it up in Genesis 16 to history is repeating itself. So why would Rachel do that? Why would Rachel take things and matters into her own hand? Probably the same reason you do. And same reason I do. Look again at verse 1. It starts out, when Rachel saw. That's the key. You remember back up in 29 verse 31. When the Lord saw, that was that we were seeing life... Uh, Leah's life and her situation through God's perspective. Here we have when Rachel saw. Now we're, we're brought from the heavens down to the earth, and we are seeing things from Rachel's perspective. It's what happens when we get focused on ourselves. It's what happens when we fail to come at life through God's perspective, when we try to solve our own problems, when we try to make things right on our own, when we try to meet our own needs our own way. And let me tell you something, that is never what God has intended for his people. He didn't back in Sarah's day or in Rachel's day or in King David's day or for the churches that Paul wrote letters to or for us today. It is not a part of the design. See, when we do that, we're guaranteed that we create a mess. We do it because we make gods of ourselves. It doesn't mean sometimes good doesn't come out of it. Of course, good can come out of the messes that we make. But it's not because of us if it happens. It's because God's sovereign. And he chooses to work in spite of it rather than because of it. But I want you to know this. If if we set out, if if you set out trying to meet your own needs, you will never be satisfied. You'll never ultimately find what you're looking for. The the next 21 verses of this chapter is, is Rachel and Leah trying to do this on their own, and they create a family mess that will last for centuries. So, jealousy and bitterness and strife, all of this is a part of the sons of Jacob for the rest of the Old Testament. And back and forth, they're going to give their maidservants to Jacob. Verses 3 through 8, 
Bilhah, who is Rachel's maidservant. She's given to Jacob. Two sons are born. One's Dan, one's Naphtali. Dan literally means God has vindicated me. Naphtali means with mighty wrestling, I've wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. I mean, you just hear it. Has she prevailed? No. Has she vindicated? No. Her womb is still barren. Her heart is still bitter. Then Leah jumps in on the act. She's probably been forsaken. Jacob's left her alone. And so she gives her maidservant, Zilpah, Verses 9 through 13, one commentator says it's like tit for tat, just all over the place. And so she has two children, Zilpah does, Gad and Asher. Gad means how fortunate. And Asher means happy am I. You just keep reading. She's not fortunate, nor is she happy. See, the first section, I think that really they were reflections of God's blessing. Here, the names of the children, I mean, they're like hurling these names at each other like, like insults. Our sinful attempts at meeting our needs, they will not satisfy. One of the craziest parts of this whole story, verses 14 through 18 these sisters in desperation. They are, they end up with this mandrake situation, which is um, supposed to be fertility uh, thing, drug, uh, the, from Big Pharma back in the day. But the way the story, Moses relates the story, then in verses 14 through 18, these two sisters end up buying and selling the conjugal rights of their husband to each other. There's a name for that. It's not good. They're competing with each other for love, for recognition, for blessing, It's, it's, it's degrading. You're, you're supposed to read it and go, I can't believe that. I can't believe this. Jacob, I can't believe this. Rachel, Leah. Rachel remains barren. Leah, although she bears two more sons, she's still unloved. And it wasn't, mandrakes didn't have anything to do with it. Verse 17 will tell you it was God who made that happen, not the mandrakes. The question that I ask when I come to the end of that bit, this back and forth, was God's, was God's will accomplished? It was his will. It was what he had said. Jacob's going to have 12 sons. Was his will accomplished? Well, yes. But I think it's easy to argue it was not accomplished in the way he meant for it to be accomplished. 
It was accomplished despite the sinfulness and the brokenness of the people in the story. The truth is, we, we don't know how God would have accomplished it, his will with Jacob, how, how he, you know, if he would have responded to Rachel's barrenness like his father and grandfather ultimately responded. Abraham responded by faith. Isaac responded by prayer. We don't know what God would have meant to do there. All we know is we come to the end of this portion of Scripture, God's will is accomplished. And yet these people, they have a mess that they're going to end up sorting out for centuries. Which leads me to this great hope in the passage. Our past doesn't disqualify us from a future with God. We might expect the narrative uh, at this point for God to be fed up with the characters. That, that, that it just ends, you know, there's a hope for another generation, that somebody else might be redeemed, pick up, maybe even a new people, but the story doesn't end. Despite all of this, despite all of the things that the characters in this story do, look at what it says in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Moses has taken us back to God's perspective. God remembered Rachel. I think we're to understand Rachel maybe finally turns to God in prayer. She's given up, at least at the moment, her quest of self-fulfillment. She's turned her petition to God. God gives heed to her. And the name Joseph literally means, would God give me another son? God, may the Lord give me another son. It's not only that God's opened her womb, but hope, hope for a future. But this time, the hope is not in herself and her own efforts. It's hope that's in the Lord. Our past doesn't disqualify us from, from future hope in God. She comes to a place, and her, her course, at least for a little while, is, is altered. That's what happens when you submit to the Lord. You say, you know what? I'm going to be done making a mess of things. I'm going to be done taking this into my own hands. I'm going to be done seeking to satisfy my own desires, going my own way. I'm going to be done with that. I'm going to trust the Lord. That absolutely change your course. Too often, though, this ends up being the end of, of a story, not the beginning. Rachel's story, she not, doesn't, is not a stalwart of faith. She'll end up picking up some old habits. She's fickle. The 
story, though, bids us to continue forward. Look to the future, trusting God, submitting to Him. Today's just the beginning. I've read this before, but I'll close with it. Well, it's been a long time since I've read it, probably. A woman named Lynn Thompson wrote this for Discipleship Journal. And I've kept it because it's... I've always found it so insightful. The title of the story she submitted was is called Children of Lesser Gods. She begins by talking about this particular tragedy um, that hit her friend. Her friend lost a, a child in a, in a tragic way, and it, and it shattered. It sort of, sort of shook her at her core, her view of God. And, and she says, tragedies can uncover what you really believe about God. I'll pick up where she says this. Throughout this season, I searched for meaning and tried to make sense out of what I believed to be senseless. Yet when I finally tried to summarize my feelings, I I was surprised to find I felt betrayed by God. I believed God was my best friend, yet it seemed he'd stabbed me in the back. How could he allow this thing to happen to such good people, his people? Who was this God whom I worshipped each Sunday and prayed to and visited with all week long? Then God whispered ever so softly to me, it's not me. In time, I learned I'd been worshipping the wrong God, actually gods. There were five of them. Each embodied attributes I attempted to place on the one true God. Scripture eventually helped me to recognize and refute these false gods. Today, I I still struggle, but I've embraced the great I am. And And I've left the lesser gods behind. These are who they are. The God who does things my way. The God who is out to harm me the God who is ambivalent, the God who is impotent, the God who is changing. She says this about the God who does things my way. We'll close. I had to accept that God had chosen to conduct his business differently than I would have. I would have intervened and stopped this tragedy Since I serve a sovereign God, I believed he could have changed the outcome of Sunday's events, yet for whatever reason he chose not to. And it took me a while to let go of the God who does things my way. In doing so, I needed to admit that I don't know what is best in the long term. A greater, more informed, though less contained, God existed and could usurp all my goals. I was dethroned. Scripture reveals a God whose ways little resemble our own. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. I've had to admit that there's a God way of thinking, and I may never apprehend it. 
After all, would I have loaded a boat with animals? Would I have limited Gideon's army? Would I have wagered that David could beat the mighty Goliath? Would I have removed sins of man by sending the Son of God? It's difficult to acknowledge that God is smarter and greater than I am. It was much tougher to convince my flesh that I was not as smart as I thought and that my ways would lead to death. I had to admit, however right my way seemed, going my way apart from God's divine insight would not lead me down the correct path. I realized that I needed a God who knew more than me and who wasn't in need of my perceived brilliance. That was humbling. On the other hand, leaving my false God behind meant I gained a much more powerful one. This God has the independence to do things based on his superior and insightful knowledge, and he frees me from carrying the world on my shoulders, and, it can, and I get to be part of his big picture as I have embraced the God who does things his way. I've rested in his blessings and glorious insight. Who's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God who does things his way. They're glorious. They're for our good. And he bids us to follow him. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you, by your word this morning, and in the power of your spirit that is that's active among us this morning, would you draw us to yourself? Father, maybe some here this morning need to say, you know what? I just need to believe that you hear me and you see me. And so, Father, would you do that? Would you draw them near? Father, there's some this morning convicted. That to one degree or another or some part, they have created you in their own image. And so, Father, this morning, that we would find ourselves confessing that and submitting to the fact you've created us in your image. That you're sovereign and that you're good and you're all-powerful. The needs we have, as real as they are, our ways to meet those needs. That's not what you designed. So, Father, would we begin submitting to your will and to your way? Father, we want to leave here, every one of us this morning, trusting you more with our life. And for anyone this morning that has never trusted you and trusted in the gift of your son Jesus, the one who died for our sins, paid the penalty, suffered our death, and then rose again to new life. Father, would you draw them by faith to your son? We ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.
Amen.